listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for December 2013. Today's episode is titled, Attitudes That Transform the Workplace. Given the reality of evil in the universe, the consequences of evil will surely manifest in the workplace. Few would doubt the reality of theft, fraud, bait-and-switch tactics, embezzlement, white-collar crime, and Ponzi schemes. These all negatively impact business through inefficiency, increased security costs, and financial loss. As a maxim, most people want to buy quality products and services from reputable organizations at the lowest price possible. Another way to express this is high quality at low cost. It should be the aim of every organization to deliver quality products or services at a low cost. This requires efficiency at every level in the organization. Efficiency is a byproduct of people living based on a biblically sound worldview. Therefore, management must work diligently to train workers in a biblical worldview. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Attitudes That Transform the Workplace. Let me ask you a question. How many of you work? Is there anyone here that does not work? Good. Anyone here that's a housewife? Homeschoolers. Okay. You understand you work. Is that clear that you work? In fact, you probably work more than the rest of us. Because you're on 24-7, 365. The rest of us seem to get breaks. But frequently we think if we, we're at home or we're homeschooling, for example, we don't work. And we think marketplace discussions are not relevant. May I suggest to you that the principles that work in the workplace work at home. They work in your homeschool environment. Furthermore, your children are going to work. And if you want to be relevant to your children, you need to be able to guide them and direct them into the will and ways of God for work. So how, what's the best way to guide anyone? Model it for them. So you need to get very relevant about how you conduct your business in whatever context God sets you and, and walk out the reality of a biblical worldview. Well, my topic today is attitudes that transform the workplace. Hopefully everyone is clear that you work. You were created to work. Genesis 1, 26-28 tells us why God created man. Man is here to work, to bring the rule and reign of God on this planet. And we're to do that by multiplying, growing, expanding over the planet, and by exercising mastery, mastery of God's universe. Have you ever wondered... Uh, you know, why we can have this wonderful technology, we can have these cute little iPads, and, you know, we can uh, project the, the presentation up on the screen. Where did that come from? It came from Asia. <laughs> Not exactly. There's a fundamental reality of this universe that you cannot escape. It is the answer to a question. In the beginning, blank. How do you fill in that blank? Now, if you say, in the beginning, man, you have become what? A humanist. 
If you say, in the beginning, Allah, what are you? A Muslim. If you say, in the beginning, Jehovah, you are, you're probably a Jew. If you say, in the beginning, God, i.e. Christ, what are you? Christian. We believe that Christ is the fullest expression of God. We believe that everything comes from Christ. All the technology we enjoy, all the modern conveniences, all the wonderful things we get to do, the comfort and the pleasure, the ease with which we have our existence, all comes because of God's principles in the universe. There's a famous conversation between um, Edwin Land, who invented the land camera, and Steve Jobs. And the conversation went something like this. Land says, you know, I didn't really invent the land camera. I discovered it. It was there all along. And I just simply discovered it. And Jobs then said, you know, that's true. I didn't invent the, the Mac. I just discovered it. Now, I have no idea the, the spiritual condition of either of these men for certain. I know something about Jobs. He was raised Lutheran. He later rejected his Lutheran heritage because he could not see how a God, a God of the Bible, could allow suffering. You see, if you can't get a biblical view, view of God, you wind up rejecting God, and you choose other gods. Nevertheless, not, notwithstanding whatever spiritual state they were in, God, through the Spirit, revealed to them a truth. They didn't invent anything. They discovered how God's universe works. I've got to get going here. I'm not going to get through it all. But I wanted to set you up and say to you, we've got to get very clear. Our lives are built on our answer to the question, in the beginning, what? Because if you're, if you're not clear on in the beginning is God, who is most fully revealed in Christ, if, that, if you're not clear on that, you will be foggy about how you live your life. Let's talk about what is an attitude. And I'm going to use a dictionary definition here. An attitude is a manner, a disposition, a feeling, a position, etc., with regard to a person or thing, tendency or orientation, and then I've underlined, especially of the mind. For example, a negative attitude. So this is a common dictionary definition of attitude. We're talking about attitudes that transform the workplace. So we need to understand what an attitude is. Let me suggest that attitudes are rooted in your worldview. You know you have a worldview. Everybody clear on that? I know Paul's going to talk more about that. I'm looking forward to hearing that. But your worldview defines your life. All somebody has to do to know about you and what's inside of you is look at how you live. If you want to, if you're an employer, if you want to be really skilled at hiring, you'll learn to detect the theology that's driving the people that you hire. You'll learn to look at the externals to see what's going on inside. Because what's going on inside gets worked out. It gets expressed in the tangible world. Now let me just give you an example of this. Philippians 2, verses 4 through 7. This is speaking of Christ and how he willingly sacrificed. The only person that never had to die freely died. Look what it says here. Each of you should look not on your own interest, but to the interests of others. That's a novel idea. Most of us t today, we follow the principle, what's in it for me? 
That's not the principle that's espoused here. The principle here is selflessness. It's dying to self. It's looking first to others and secondarily to yourself. Your attitude, and that word attitude there means your self-perception, your own opinion of yourself, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Now this speaks of Jesus' worldview. His view of God and therefore his view of himself. You know, we don't see ourselves well until we see God well. So he had got a very clear view of who God is, the Father, and that now defined the Son. So now this worldview now has tangible expression. So let's look at the next verse. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That physical act of death is rooted in the spiritual reality in his heart. That's, that's where attitudes reside. They reside in our heart. They're an expression of our worldview. Now, do you think the workplace needs transformation? Think so? All right, so let's just consider a couple of texts real quickly here. And then I want to give you some statistics. So that you, you know, since we're in a world where you tend to believe statistics more than scripture, I'll give you both. Maybe you'll believe one or the other, you know. Hopefully you'll begin to believe scripture more than stats. But, all right, Colossians one twenty one. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds. You ever thought about that? Being an enemy of God in your mind? What would that be? How about a bad worldview? That's what it looks like to have a bad view of God. It's now your enemy of God in your minds. It goes on to say, because of your evil behavior. Wait a minute. Mind, behavior, they're connected here? It's interesting. This word evil here is the word we get pornography from. The word for behavior is the common Greek word ergon, which refers to work. Any kind of work, it's your ergon. Whatever you do every day is your ergon. So he's talking about your evil work reflects your bad worldview. So if that's correct, then what would your good work reflect? A good worldview, a sound worldview. Which comes first, the work or the worldview? The worldview. If you want to change somebody... Don't get into behavior modification. That's only partially effective. What's really effective is helping people get a sound view of God. Sound theology in them. Ultimately, everything in your life is a reflection of your theology, which is your worldview. So this is the base nature of man. Man is born alienated from God with a bad worldview. So if the base nature of man is alienation from God, then why should one expect to be successful in life, including business? Why would you expect that? You know, we hire people. How many of you hire people? Okay. Most, most of us at some point will hire people. We'll be involved in hiring people. And I, I dare say, if you're like most, then you'll hire people using secular thinking. 
you'll basically say, okay, I need somebody to do X. So what skills do I need? And the assumption is, I just go find the skill sets and everything will be fine. We don't consider the spiritual dimension of that person. We don't consider that person's worldview. You know how to test for somebody's worldview? You got any skills in doing that? You've been trained to do that? Well, may I suggest you really don't know how to hire. Until you can discern what's really in someone's heart, their view of God, you're not going to really know that person. Now, sadly, mostly what happens is people hire people, and then pretty soon you discover their worldview. And how do you discover their worldview? Through their work. You begin to see things, you know, whether it's attitudes and actions and things that come out of their mouth and the priorities in life. You begin to see this is really out of order. It's because their theology is out of order. That's how that works. So the base nature of man, we come into this existence with a bias of alienation against God. So to achieve success in business, indeed all of life, one needs to be transformed from this base state to a new state aligned with the will and the ways of God. And I just cite Psalms 1. I love you, Psalms 1, because it's so clear. Let me ask you a question. How many of you want to be blessed in life? Okay. How many of you invest thinking about what will God bless? There are a few of you that I've trained. <laughs> Most of you I've not trained, and so you're not thinking about that. Because, you know, if, if you really are thinking biblically, you know that the things that get blessed are things that line up with God. In every area, whether it's you're investing in the stock market, or you're investing in real estate or art, or whatever you're investing in, you've got to learn to discern what is God going to bless. Because if he's not going to bless something, what's going to happen? It's going to get judged. How, how many of you would like to have had real estate in Sodom and Gomorrah right before it was destroyed? Huh? Hey, you're probably going to find some really good property there, maybe, maybe a really good deal, you know, the day before. Okay? That's the way a lot of us live. We, we're so disconnected from what God does and what he blesses. Blessed is the one who lines up with the will and ways of God. That's effectively what Psalm 1 says. All right, so let me just give you some stats now for those of you that are skeptical about a spiritual approach to reality. So I'll give you some stats. Now, this is a statistics from three different uh, time frames from the U.S. in 2004, from China in 2009, and China in 2012. So you can see the blue bars are the U.S., the red is China 2009, the green is China 2012. Now, on the, the left side, you see actively engaged, ambivalent, and actively disengaged. Going from the, I'm going to go up here so I can point to things. Going from the bottom, bottom to the top. Okay, so what this is, is this is a, a the question is, about the workforce. What is the state of the workforce? The average workforce in the U.S. and China when these statistics were gathered. The question is, is the workforce actively engaged? Is it ambivalent or is it actively disengaged? Now what actively engaged means is that the, the workers are proactively working 
to help the organization accomplish what the organization is trying to accomplish. Ambivalent means they don't care. Actively disengaged means they are actively working against the organization. But the organization is paying them. Now, obviously, they're doing it, you know, kind of hiding their actions. But they're working against the organization. So you can see in the U.S., uh, and by the way, I've seen this, this particular survey done in a number of different venues. So this is pretty typical of what I've seen in the U.S. Typically, about 20% of the workforce is actively engaged. About, oh, 55 to 60% are ambivalent. They don't care. And somewhere around 20% or so are actively working against the organization. Now, you say, well, gee, that doesn't add up 100%. Well, it doesn't do it exactly because the statistics allow for, you know, the room for people that they couldn't get clear on. So don't try to add up to 100%. But the, the surveys are pretty consistent. This is what you see in the U.S. pretty much every time I've seen this survey done. Which, that means this. Your products and services in the U.S. are largely produced by 20% of the people. These people are a little helpful. These people are working against you. So whatever these guys are doing are being, are probably being countered by these. It takes, you know, triple ambivalent people to counter the people working against you. So everything's pretty much done by those people. All right. Now look at China, 2009. Look at that number. Less than 5% are actively engaged. The ambivalent, you can see 70%. Those actively working against you, almost 35%. Now, you see, in 2012, it got a little bit better, okay? This went up a little bit. This stayed about the same. This one went down a little bit. Now, this is a picture of what? Bad theology. The worldview here that's in play is not good. Would you agree with that? I mean, would you be satisfied with this? Hopefully you wouldn't. Now, let me just encourage you, those of you that are sitting there mentally thinking, that's not true of my company. I know there's a bunch of you thinking that way. Okay? And my experience, every time I've had a chance to work with leadership of companies that deny this, and they've given me an opportunity to talk to them and quiz them, by the end of the conversation, they're not denying it anymore. Because they realize they have been in deception. And they can begin to pinpoint these people that are working against them, and they're paying them to work against them. And they say, this is insanity. Well, it is insanity. It's because you don't know how well to think biblically in the workplace. You think the workplace God is not interested in. He doesn't care. Well, that means you've answered the question in the beginning blank differently. It's no longer in the beginning God. You're thinking some way or another, man can figure it out in the workplace without God or God's not interested. No, in the beginning, God means God created everything. He is engaged at every level in every scenario. Okay, so those of you that need stats, you got enough stats? Okay, you know we got a problem? We, we need change. We need transformation. And so hopefully we can begin to move forward. Just some, here's some reference material if you're interested. If you want these notes... Get my business card over here from Lashana. Wave, Lashana. She's got them. And send me an email, and I will, I will get you these notes. 
All right, here's the transformation. Every, everybody on this planet lives in one of four states. Doesn't matter who you are, where you are, when you live, what you think you know you are, who you think you are, you live in one of these four states. You either live to do the will of man according to the ways of man, which is the default state of all mankind, or you live to do the will of God here according to the ways of God, which is Jesus, or you live in one of these two states, which I call hypocrites or hypocrisy, which is now you're trying to blend the will of God and the ways of man or the will of man and the ways of God. Now, hopefully you can see immediately the only state that you want to live in is this state right here. Is everybody clear on that? That's where you want to go. If you can't learn how to live in this state, then you're either going to be just living as a pagan here or you're going to live, live as a hypocrite. So those are the options for you. Now, if we're going to truly bring, bring attitudes that transform the workplace, which is the topic of this presentation, what state do we need to be in? This is it. There's no other state that's going to bring transformation. We have to learn to live like Jesus lived. And so that's the challenge. Now, I was going to do this Tower of Babel as an example of, of illustrating these hypocritical states, but I don't really have time to do that. So just let me just very quickly say this. What you saw, you go back, as an example of this, what you see here with, with the Tower of Babel is they were after doing their will. And their will was all about self-glory. They did this project to make a name for themselves. The only way you can do anything in this planet and have any level of success is you have to use some level of biblical principles. So they used some of the ways of God. For example, like teamwork. They were also very strategic, and they used the, the right location, the right technology. They used a lot of things that, that, that God designed for the universe to work with. They used those ways of God, but they were all about their self-glory, which was their will. So they were doing their will according to God's ways, and they had a level of success for a period of time, and then they got judged. Now, what we don't know is how long. We don't know that. The Scripture doesn't tell us that. We know this, that with the technology that they had back then, it took a long time to build things. They, built, they spent decades building things, and they had a big project here. This thing could have gone on 100 years, wow. 200 years. Who knows how long it went on? We don't know how long it went on. But there was an end, the judgment did come, because God does not fund and support long-term doing your will and using his ways. Well, likewise, they did this too. There is the will of God that was being expressed there. They, God called us to go and advance things, to master his universe. So on, one, on some level, they were doing it. They were exercising dominion. But the sad part about it, they were trying to do it their ways, which was autonomous, independent of God. So you see both of these hypocritical states in play here in that one situation here. So just want to give that real quickly to you to set us up for talking about what it is to live like Jesus. Okay, now what I've got here is I'm just going to focus in on one key principle. A principle that all of you should know which is the two greatest commandments. You know that, right? Jesus was asked the question. Isn't it nice when, 
a question is posed that we want the answer to and it's just laid out right in Scripture, oh, there's the answer. Hey, well, here's, here's the question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? Hey, Jesus says, no brainer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, everything else is a derivative of these two commandments. So love the Lord, love the Lord and love your neighbors yourself. Drive greatest commandments right here. Is everybody clear? Agreement on that. Now, let me just define love, if I may. Uh, those of you that are Greek students know there are three words for love in the Greek language. The word that's used here is agape. Okay. The other words are philio and uh, Philadelphia, the word, uh, uh, eros, philio, and agape. Eros is erotic love. Philio is brotherly love. Agape love means sacrificial living. Agape love is not in emotion. Look at me. Agape love is not an emotion. Most of us think agape love is an emotion. It is not an emotion. It is sacrifice. God so loved the world that he what? Gave his son to die. Sacrifice. That's what agape love is. So loving the Lord is about us sacrificing our will and our ways to do God's will and God's ways. Likewise, Loving your neighbor, again, it's agape love, sacrificing our agenda, our will, and our ways to serve God's highest good for someone else. So those are the two key principles. Now, <clears throat> from this, I've just given you some attitudes to consider. This is not the list. This is just a representative list of attitudes. For example, obedience to a biblical worldview, or humility, or your view of success and money. Or being multi-generational, understanding personal destiny, understanding discipleship. These are just attitudes that should be coming from a worldview that's truly lined up with sound theology. And that is linked, I believe, with these two principles of loving God and loving your neighbor. Now, now I want to give you some examples of this since you guys are in the case studies. Isn't that a big deal in the marketplace? You've got to do case studies. So I got, I got my case studies here, and obviously I cannot cover all of these case studies in the, what do I have, eight minutes left? So you get to pick. I'm going to let you pick whatever case study you would like to hear, and I will tell you the, study, the story. Okay? Huh? You want to hear J.C. Penney? All right, well, Peter spoke. Everybody want to hear J.C. Penney? Okay. Anybody want to hear something else? Mayo. Somebody wants to hear Mayo, okay. You want to hear Mayo? Okay. Well, all right, I'll do Mayo first. I know why you want to hear Mayo, because you saw the money. Well, you are a board member, and you are going to sacrifice. Yeah, sacrifice. All right, we'll do money. I, I, I'm not surprised you, you were drawn to money. All right. William and Charlie Mayo were... Uh, they were the son of William Mayo Sr. And, by the way, would it be interesting for you to know that William Mayo Sr. was discipled by a great physicist? That'd be interesting to any, for you to know that? Just thought you might want to know that. Huh? We're talking about Mayo Clinic, yes. 
This organization was founded actually by this lady right here, Mother Alfred Maria Mose, in the late 1880s. She died before she fully understood what she had done. She's the one the Mayo Clinic exists. Mayo Clinic was not started by the Mayos. The Mayos were not interested in it. They had no vision for it. God raised up a Catholic nun and envisioned her. This woman was sworn to a vow of poverty, but she had this vision for doing a medical center, a hospital, at a time when hospitals were viewed as places of death. Because healthcare was so primitive and so little was understood about how to properly do healthcare. But she saw that, hey, this could be a place of health. It could be a place of life. So she began to work with William Mayo and got William Mayo to finally agree to establish the, the Mayo Clinic. I wish I could give you the full story. I don't have time to do that because I'm going to get on to the money side. It, the clinic got started and the early years were difficult. And William Mayo Sr., by the time Mayo Clinic was started, he was nearly 70 years old. Now, do you know the life expectancy in 1888? About 65. He was well past his expected lifetime. So he was not in any real position to do anything. So he deputizes his sons, generational transfer. And Will and Charlie, he sends Will and Charlie around the world at his expense to learn and to study all the great medical techniques that they could find of the day that would produce life. They came back and brought those back to Rochester, Minnesota, and they established then the Mayo Clinic in conjunction with St. Mary's Hospital. You see, St. Mary's Hospital and the Mayo Clinic were separate organizations. And by the way, they operated separately for 100 years. They didn't merge until the 1980s. And... The merger was quite a fiasco. You know why it was a fiasco? Because for 100 years, they had done business on a handshake. Then they got lawyers involved. Very expensive, very time-consuming, but it, it, it shows you something of the character and nature of the people that were involved. To be able to do business on a handshake for 100 years, could you, you think you could do that? Yeah. It would be difficult. What are you saying to me? But your, your dad told me. Who am I supposed to listen to, you or your dad? Huh? Huh? You're putting me in a bad place here. All right, honey, what do I do here? Huh? No help. He's delegating this to you? All right. Okay. Well, that helps me a little bit. Gives me a little more time. Because I was down to three. What? No, I, have, I actually had eight minutes left. That was pretty good. Okay, so Will and Charlie go around the world, and they, they gather all this information on how to conduct a hospital. Bring it back to Rochester, Minnesota, and they start up uh, St. Mary's Hospital with the Mayo, Mayo Clinic supporting the hospital, providing the oversight. So first ten years or so were really tough. They struggled, uh, barely were able to keep the doors open. A couple times, it got really thin. I mean, they really didn't know if they'd be able to pay their bills. But finally, toward the end of the 1890s, things really began to blossom. And the hospital really began to flow. 
William Mayo Sr. was really not a factor in hardly any of this. Once the thing got started, he was just so old, he was not able to be a factor. Maria Mose, even though she is the one that had the vision and founded this whole organization, shortly after she founded it, a very jealous priest removed her from her responsibilities in Rochester, physically moved her, and she died in 1895, never knowing what she did. Would that be okay with you if God takes you before you fully see what he wants to do through you? Is that okay? I don't know. It's tough. If you're brutally honest, that's a tough deal. But she never really knew. So Will and Charlie were left running the organization, both the hospital and the Mayo Clinic. In about 1910, what happened is they had decided from the very early days that they were going to disciple doctors. Now, they didn't use that term. They, they probably called apprenticing or something like that. So if you look at their surgery room, and there are pictures of their surgery rooms, there's a gallery in every surgery room. And I've, I've seen a number of pictures where the, the men are gathered around watching the surgical procedure. And so as they did the surgery, not only did they physically do the work, they, they spoke and explained what they were doing and why they were doing it. So that was the culture built into the hospital. By about 1910, now they were 20 years into this, Will and Charlie realized we need to formalize the training. We need to establish a foundation, and now we need to be able to fund you know, this foundation so we can really have a robust school of medicine. Well, they, they didn't have a lot of money. Nobody had a lot of money at that time. Uh, incidentally, Will and Charlie had a joint checking account, and they never gave each other, you know, a report. They just pulled out whatever they needed to live on. Think you could do that with your brother? Huh? With anyone. I mean, they had a different view of money. They did not look at it like we do. We're all about what's in it to make, make me comfortable and convenient, what it, what, I need to fund my 401k, I need to be able to buy my second home, I need a, I need my fancy, you know, what is it, uh, your over 40 car, midlife crisis car? You know, that's what we're into. They, were, they, they had no, that would not compute to them. If they were here today watching us, listening to us, they would say, man, what planet are you guys from? You don't have a clue what life's all about. So when the time came for this medical clinic to be funded, guess what happened? Will and Charlie emptied their bank account, their joint bank account, which is all they really had other than their homes, and put it into the foundation. They gave everything they had except their homes and gave it to the foundation. And that's how the, the Mayo Foundation got started. That's how the medical school got formalized. That was about 1914. Now, how would you do that? What would, in you, what would drive you to do something like that? A profound view of money far beyond what we have. Where you saw money no longer as something for your pleasure, your comfort, your convenience. Now money is a tool to do the will of God. And if God gives you that tool, use the tool to do the will of God. Well, not only did they do that once, they did it again. In the late 1930s, Will and Charlie are in, nearing the end of their life. 
And the, the school needed more resources, more funding. This time, they did it again. They gave away everything, including this time, their homes. Everything. Because it wasn't about them. It wasn't about their pleasure, their comfort, their convenience. It was about the advancement of what God was doing in that organization. It was the will of God, the ways of God. That's what drove them. Now, that is a profound view of money. Money was a tool to do the will of God. It was nothing, had nothing to do with them. Does that give you a different view of money? Now, does that give you, how many of you have thought, as you listen to these principles, hey, nobody's ever done this stuff? How many of you have thought that? You're, you're lying. Most of you have thought it. I've talked to most of you. And that's always the question, well, who's done this stuff? Well, there's a lot of people have done it. In fact, if you want more examples, on my website, I've got about 25 examples out there of people that have done it. And for those of you that don't like to read, you can go listen to the stories because I've, I've shared the stories in various settings. So those are out there. Now we want to do J.C. Penney? Yeah. Okay. Now, J.C. Penney suffered an incredible, incredibly difficult situation in 1912. The Lord took his wife. It was crushing. It was brutal. At that time in his life, he had been in business about 10 years. He started in a mining town in Wyoming in 1901. And he went up there at a time when the town was, was virtually dominated, the economy, by mining. He was probably one of a dozen dry goods stores. But he had a conviction his conviction was, I'm going to go do business differently. You see, all the other dry goods stores did business on credit, which meant that every week the miners would come in and they would buy you know, stuff on credit. And on Friday when they got paid, they'd come in and pay off their bill and they'd be broke again. And so the next week they'd buy everything on credit. And on Friday, come in and pay off their bill. So basically credit's what kept them going. J.C. Penney had a conviction of the Lord. The conviction was, no credit. Not going to do business on credit. He comes up there, makes it clear to everyone, not going to do business on credit. They look at him and say, are you crazy? I mean, nobody business does business like that. You'll be out of business here in a week. He said, well, if I am, I am. But my conviction is no credit, and that's what I'm going to do. Does it surprise you to know that God honored that? And not only did he succeed, he thrived. And from that one location, other locations sprung up. By the way, do you know what the name of his first store was? Those of you that have been through my seminar, you can't say anything here. What's the name of the first store? Anybody know? It was the Golden Rule Store. The Golden Rule Store. That's, that was the first name he adopted. He later changed it to the J.C. Penney Company as he began to expand and grow. Well... The trauma that happened in 1912 just, just really, really did a number on him. He, uh, he was crushed. And in fact, he was confused and just couldn't understand how God could have done this. He had a thriving business. We had really walked with God so carefully to build it and get it up to a certain point. And now all of a sudden, it's, it's like, wow, just a, the rug's been pulled out from under, underneath me. I, I have no, no more drive to go on. What do I do? 
He's literally in New York City one day, and that night he went out wandering on the streets. He's depressed. He's discouraged. And as he's wandering around, he hears this sound. Sounds like singing. So he begins to follow the sound. And he follows the sound to an outreach there in New York City. And they were singing hymns. And so he wanders in. Now, he had been raised Christian. He had heard those hymns before. They sounded familiar, which is what drew him. He was being drawn to what was familiar to him. So he sat down. And soon a man got up and shared a message of truth. And as he sat there, the Holy Spirit touched him and began to heal his heart. By the time that meeting was over that night, he was transformed. He knew that God was in the death of his wife. As hard and as horrific, as challenging, as brutally difficult as it was, God was in it. And so now he had a come to Jesus experience again. And he committed now to no longer live based on the what he saw, but now to live based on the truth of the word of God in his heart. So based on that, he went out and he began to really seek the Lord about, Lord, how do you want to build your business? About five years later, as he's continuing to seek the process with the Lord, he had a revelation one day. He realized, you know, I'm not really a good CEO. That's really not my gifting. And he realized what he was really good at was HR. Now, the model that J.C. Penney practiced is really a good model. It's a discipleship model. What they would do is they would go into a town, they would find a partner, and they would sit down and they would train that partner, and then they would build a store, stock the store, and give the partner the store, and they would split the profits together. Now, do you guys know who does that today? Chick-fil-A. Virtually the same model as J.C. Penney had. Do you know that? Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A does basically the same model as Penny. Now, I don't know if they got it from Penny, but it's the same basic model. It's amazing. You know what a Chick-fil-A franchise costs? $5,000. It's nothing. Well, Penny's, Penny's franchise fee, as far as I know, was zero. You come, I'm going to train you, we'll stock the store, we'll build the store, and we're going to put you in it, we're going to split the profits. That's how it worked. What Penny realized about himself was that God had wired him to be a great recruiter and discipler. So in his organization was a man that had been there for about 20 years, that he trusted, that he knew his worldview. He knew his view of God. He knew this man very well. Big clue here for those of you that are looking to, you know, promote leaders. Went into his office and said, look, I believe the Lord is calling you to be the CEO. I said, wait a minute. It's your company. No, no, it's the Lord's company. But he's calling you to run it. He says, well, what are you going to do? He said, my call is to go and recruit and disciple our partners. That's what I'm going to do. That was about 1918. Starting in 1918 to 1929, the J.C. Penney Company exploded with healthy growth. Please, I want to stress that. I know there's a big deal. We make a big deal in our culture about fast-growing companies. I don't know if you've, if you've ever tracked any of those fast-growing companies. A lot of them wind up blowing up. Okay. 
because they're not healthy growth. They don't know how to build based on biblical worldview, which means based on people that are growing in the knowledge of God, doing what they're called to do according to God's will and his ways. Well, Penny understood something of that at a level that few of us do, and so he practiced it. So by 1929, the J.C. Penny Company became the biggest retailer in the United States. Now see, this is what happens. When you begin to line up with the will and ways of God, and you begin to apply principles like discipleship, and lining up with what God has called you to do, it's going to be incredible things happening because you're now functioning in God's universe the way he designed it to function. And see, that's what we don't do well because we keep defaulting to how the world does it. And to some degree, it's an indictment on the Christian leadership because the Christian leadership has largely neglected teaching on how to do organizations biblically. I mean, it's a sad reality, but that's where it is because we bought into this truncated gospel that, well, Jesus is all about your soul. He doesn't care about what you do Monday through Friday. Okay, just go out there, be ethical, and evangelize. That's what a lot of people think Christianity looks like in the workplace. And so we have no sense of biblical principles for the workplace. The challenge for us is can we begin to bring a biblical worldview in the workplace like these people, whether it's J.C. Penney or Mother Maria Alfred Mose or William and Charlie Mayo, or how about Congo Gumi? I love Congo Gumi. This is like wisdom crying in the streets. You know who Congo Gumi is? Congo Gumi was a Japanese Buddhist temple builder. Yeah, a Japanese Buddhist temple builder. About seven years ago, it collapsed. It had been in business for 1,400 years. At the time it collapsed, it was the oldest organization in the world. At least company. You might say, well, the Roman Catholic Church older. Well, maybe. But it was the oldest company in the world. It had gone through 35 CEOs in the same family. You said, how would you do that? Would you be surprised to know that some way or another, through common grace or whatever means the Holy Spirit used, they understood the C4 principle. That's how they promoted in their, in their family. They looked for people that had C4 to be the CEO. And that company went on for 35 generations. Now, why would a Buddhist temple builder be the oldest company in the world? Huh? Why would that be? You talk about an indictment on the Christian community. It's like, are you guys brain dead? Do, do you, like the Holy Spirit asking, don't you see anything? I'm going to bring this pagan company and show you what they can do as a pagan company. How much more can you do if you learn to walk in the will and ways of God? The potential is enormous. You talk about leaving, leaving something on the table. You know, that's a common thing in construction. When you bid a job, if you are too low, you know, you say you left money on the table. Okay, it's a very common phrase. Well, we have left enormous potential on the table because we have adopted worldly thinking and not even as good as the best worldly companies. Congo Gumi, to me, is an indictment on us for our failure to bring the reality of biblical thinking into the workplace. I hope it convicts you as much as it convicts me because it's, 
to me, it's, it's, it's a sober reality to think that the pagans can do it better than we can. And we know the God that created all of this. And we have revelation of him through Christ. And we have the word of God. The word of God is so rich with biblical truth for how to conduct businesses. Did you know the scripture tells us that God taught the farmer how to farm? Isaiah 28. Take a look at it. It's right there. Not only did he teach the farmer how to farm, he taught him how to harvest the crop. He taught him how to process the crop to produce food for people. God taught them. They didn't make it up. It wasn't invented by man. It came from the sovereign God who created everything. May I submit to you, if he makes the rules for farming, he makes the rules for everything. Whatever business you're in, God has made the rules. And if you want to do it well, according to his will and his ways, then you can build something that would line up with his purposes that would truly bring glory to him. Would that be worth living for? Yeah. Well, may the Lord give us all grace to learn to live like that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.